You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod and check out the rest of my podcasts at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to support what I do here, uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where you can get access to exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to podcast episodes and previously unreleased content. Um, again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, uh, for instance, this episode is posting on Wednesday, July 6th, but uh, all of my patrons on Patreon got access to it on uh, Saturday, July 2nd, which is when I'm recording it. <laughs> so um, in addition to that, there's a ton of stuff there. I did episode reviews of Stranger Things, which I posted on the Obsessive Viewer podcast um, as, I, as a little teaser. And I also did Foundation and uh, I've done commentary tracks for Ex Machina and a bunch of different uh, movies and stuff. So anyway, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Check that out uh, if you are interested in more content. So today on the show, I'm going to be discussing five characters in search of an exit. It's the 14th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on December 22nd, 1961. And of course, I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 22, A Visit from Dr. Pliny, which that episode, at least for the time being, I'm very gun-shy about saying whether or not uh, the episodes of Science Fiction Theater are available to view on the internet, but I did find a link to this episode on YouTube, which I'll link in the show notes of this episode. Um, that that YouTube link was posted, or that YouTube video was posted uh, eight days ago, so I don't know if it'll get hit with like a copyright notice or taken down or or what have you. Um, at this point, I just it's it's such a bummer when <laughs> those like this is an this is a very old classic television show, and I kind of feel like if it's not going to be streaming anywhere, if it's not going to be posted, it's not going to be if the physical release is discontinued and everything what's the harm in posting it online? <laughs> like, what is the harm in that? I know that there's copyrights and all of that. And, and it is, you know, I, I don't know. It's all, it's all a big thing, but I mean, if it's not available anywhere else, just make it available somewhere. And I'm super excited to talk about this episode, uh, after I talk about the Twilight Zone, because this episode was excellent and it's just, it's such a shame. Anyway, so more on science fiction theater later in this episode. Um, once again, thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode for uh, The Twilight Zone and uh, everything else. Um, before I get into it, I do want to mention um, 
there is a new Twilight Zone podcast out there. It's uh, the Twilight Zone Sandbox. Um, I listened to the first episode and uh, the guy, oh my God, I can't remember his name. The guy who hosts it, it's another one man show. Yeah, it's a, it's very entertaining. It's um, I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, there's no shortage of Twilight Zone uh, content out there. And obviously, if you're listening to this, you know well enough that you can't get enough of Twilight Zone um, uh, out there. So it's it's Twilight Zone Sandbox. Check that out on Twitter at Zone, at zone Sandbox. Um, it's really cool. Like, he released his first episode um, a few days ago. And um, he does this really cool... Um, he has a bunch of different segments and everything or a bunch of different styles. So the first episode is part one of a two part uh, episode about Cliff Robertson. And like, I love it. Like he talks about, uh, it, so he, like the style of it is like, Oh, it's a bubblegum bubblegum card trivia, um, thing. And so he, he does like, it's very energetic, very cool. I, I really liked it. So check that out. Uh, Twilight Zone Sandbox to on Twitter at Zone Sandbox. Um, and he had some nice things to say about, about my show as well. So thank you so much. Um, but anyway, check that out. Um, yeah. And I just realized that we are on the cusp of, or when you're listening to this on the main feed, um, we just passed the July 4th marathon, which I haven't. So with the marathons and everything, and I know I'm, I'm being very, um, (laughs) I'm, I'm being very scattered in this episode and everything. And I hate it as much as you guys do, but, (laughs) um, with the Twilight Zone marathons that happen on July 4th and on New Year's Day, I never see them because of the entire conceit of this podcast being the first time that I'm watching the Twilight Zone. Um, but I would love to, like, I don't know, I would love to sit down and, like, mainline a um, a, uh, a Twilight Zone marathon um, someday when I finish the series. Um, technically, I can do that, just I can just skip around but anyway um i hope you guys enjoyed the marathon i hope that it's still going on um because i know some years it's it's not done but uh but yeah i hope you guys enjoyed the marathon and everything so with all of that out of the way let's go ahead and dig in to five characters in search of an exit and of course i'm going to be spoiling the episode from the jump so if you haven't seen it uh, go check it out on Paramount Plus or, you know, physical media, whatever. Um, and uh, and then come back and listen. So, as always, I'm going to start with the plot summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr., which I recommend picking up. That is a just massive tome of of information about the show. It's, it's a lifesaver for me, really. <laughs> um, so here we go. Plot summary, courtesy of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Five people wake to find themselves in a deep circular pit, unaware of who they are, where they are, how they got there, and how long they will remain. Judging by the costumes they wear, their professions are truly varied. A bagpipe player, a clown, a ballerina, an army major, and a hobo. Not only do they question their identities, but their prison as well. Could they be in an alien spacecraft? Could this be a mirage? Perhaps they are dead and this is limbo. The only thing certain is the loud ringing that echoes in their ears every so often, and the only exit is up above. 
In desperation, the five of them stand on each other's shoulders to reach the top of the pit. After two attempts, they succeed. The army major reaches the top, loses his, losing his balance, and falls over the edge. Outside in the snow, a little girl picks up a small doll of an army major and puts it back in the barrel. Their identities revealed, they are merely unwanted dolls donated to the View Park Girls' Home for the 17th Annual Christmas Doll Drive. Down inside the barrel, the dolls remain motionless and the ballerina sheds a tear for she is aware of her identity and the fact that they, are, that they were all unwanted. So, this episode stars uh, five actors. Um... <laughs> First is Susan Harrison, uh, who was the ballerina. This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone, and it appears that she stopped acting shortly after this episode, like in the mid-60s, I think. And there aren't many credits to her name or anything. Um, I did find out that she passed away in 2019, so that's something. But she uh, apparently retired from acting or stopped acting uh, in the 60s. And then as the major is William Wyndham. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes, with the next one being Season 4's Miniature, and he also made two appearances in Night Gallery, and he also appeared in the Rod Serling scripted 1972 movie The Man. Um, and then as the clown, uh, probably the standout performance of the episode is Murray Matheson. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, however... He did appear in the Kick the Can segment of the Twilight Zone movie, and he was also in Assault on a Queen from 1966, which was a movie or TV movie, I'm not sure, uh, that was written by Serling. And he also made one appearance in an episode of Night Gallery. Um, and then elsewhere, he, uh, in elsewhere in the sci-fi anthology realm, he appeared in one episode of Tales, uh, Tales of Tomorrow, uh, in 1953, and one episode of One Step Beyond in 1960, and it's worth noting, at least I couldn't find anything to, I couldn't find any information otherwise, but he is apparently no relation to Richard Matheson. Um, and then, uh, the next two, uh, we've got Kelton Garwood as the tramp or the hobo. Um, this was his only episode of the twilight zone and I couldn't really find anything else of, uh, you know, noteworthiness in, in his filmography. And then rounding out the cast as the bagpiper is Clark Allen. And this was his only episode of the twilight zone. And similar to Susan Harrison, he didn't act much, but he was also a singer of some renown. Um, and I did find an interesting piece of trivia about him. Um, this is taken from the IMDb uh, bio on him, uh, on his IMDb page, but uh, Clark Allen was shot in a robbery attempt at his nightclub, the El Cid, in uh 1972 he nearly died from the wound his recovery which took nearly a year surprised even his doctors so that's pretty interesting and, and wild um yeah so so anyway that's interesting uh writer for this episode is rod serling it was based on a short story titled the depository by marvin h Peddle, and according to Unlocking the door to a television classic, Marvin Petal was kind of getting, like, starting out as a writer. He was kind of working and, and writing uh, some things kind of, you know, he's writing here and there. I think he wrote um, some stories for a local TV station, I think. I'm not sure. But um, he saw an opportunity when he was going to be attending a Democratic Party rally that he knew Rod Serling was going to be at. So he ended up writing a five-page synopsis for a story uh, called The Depository. Um, he wrote it completely on spec, 
and was planning to approach Serling at the party. And that's what he did. He approached Serling kind of similar to, um, oh, I can't remember the, the writer's name, but, um, uh, the, the lady who approached him at, uh, a party for, I think it was either the hitchhiker or, um, uh, I shot an arrow in the air. I think it was, I shot an arrow into the air. Anyway, uh, so Marvin Peddle uh, approached Serling and Serling told him to go ahead and give the, give the story to Buck Houghton, Houghton. Um, and they ended up buying the story and, uh, Serling ended up writing the script entirely. Um, and it's funny cause in, well, it's not funny. It's kind of sad, but in the, uh, in unlocking the door to a television classic, uh, Peddle is quoted as saying that he only got, uh, an upfront, up, upfront fee of $250 for the story. And, uh, he regretted not getting any residuals from it. So as many times as the episode aired on television, he never got any, he never saw any residuals for, um, for the, for, for the work that he did or the story that he wrote since Serling ended up writing the uh, entire script and, uh, just based it on his story. Um, for those who don't know, if, in case you don't know, residuals are basically anytime a movie or show, uh, appears on television, the people involved with it get, you know, I mean, sometimes it's very small, um, but they get paid for every airing of it. Um, very, uh, you know, small amounts, but they add up and everything. So, uh, so yeah, so that is the kind of behind the scenes of the writing of this episode. Um, director for this episode was Lamont Johnson. This was his second of eight total Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw his work in the absolutely stunning episode, The Shelter, and next we're see, we'll, we will see from him is in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about Nothing in the Dark. And, uh, and an interesting piece of trivia and note about Lamont Johnson is that uh, his actual final directing credit before he passed away in the mid-aughts, I think, um, was for an episode of Felicity, which I will talk about later. <laughs> uh, Felicity episode, uh, season two, I think episode 11, titled Help for the Lovelorn, which that episode of Felicity... I found while researching this this episode uh, was a complete homage to the Twilight Zone, even down to like being shot in black and white, having an opening and closing narration, having just kind of some very fantastical science fiction properties to it, and uh, even incorporating some of the music. So it's really interesting that they got Lamont Johnson. Uh, to direct that episode of that specific episode of Felicity, but uh, I'm going to try to hold my tongue a little bit when I get to trivia for for this episode because I like there's there's a whole J.J. Abrams rant that I'm going to make about this episode of Felicity and J.J. Abrams in in general. So anyway, um, but help for the lovelorn that episode of Felicity it is available to stream on Hulu, and uh, and it does in addition to having a ton of of Twilight Zone kind of homages and everything. It does very, very, very directly um, uh, pay homage to this particular episode of The Twilight Zone. So that's interesting that they got Lamont Johnson to uh, uh, to direct that. So now with the talent rundown rundown, um, <laughs> let me go into my feelings as a viewer of five characters in search of an exit. And first of all, this is one of those episodes where what I knew before I watched it for the first time was a considerable amount. So this is one of the more popular episodes of the show. There's no question of that. And one that I, I felt like I knew a lot about because it's just kind of, it's, it's very much, um, 
uh, ubiquitous in pop culture when you're talking about the Twilight Zone. And so what I knew beforehand was that it's about five people that are trapped in a box and that they're all different characters. And I knew that there was a clown and maybe a ballerina. Uh, but I knew, unfortunately, I knew that they were all actually dolls in a toy box. That's what I thought it was, at least. Um, and what I kind of thought about when going into this episode for the first time was I wasn't sure if that's if that's like the big reveal at the end of the episode or if it's the conceit of the episode and revealed to us at the beginning. So I didn't know if it was going to be like a Toy Story thing where we know that they're toys um, and and the episode is about them coming kind of coming to terms with that uh, fact or if it was a, a thing at the end. I kind of if I if I had to wager a guess at the time, I would have said probably 80 percent likely that that the twist was that they're toys in a box. And I was right. But anyway, so uh, let me get into my thoughts on five characters in search of an exit. Um, So we start out with the major waking up. And my immediate thought when I saw that was he looks like a pilot of some kind. (laughs) Um, And I really thought that the shots of the opening at the top uh, were really kind of neat, Uh, like geometrically speaking, like this is a very bare bones uh, set and it's it kind of really is uh is very evocative and interesting because we have this complete blank space of of open uh, of a very confined space really uh for these five people to inhabit and since they are all like dressed in very specific uh wardrobes from whatever their you know their identity is or whatever um it kind of brings out this level of detail in in the wardrobe and in the characters because we're not seeing them in like a regular state we're seeing them in this blank canvas of a, of a barrel and i thought that, that was really interesting and in addition to that i really like that it it opens up with the major waking up and him like clearly being incredibly confused and and uh, perplexed by his, you know, entrapment in this barrel. And I really like that because it gives this sense of abduction to the story. And it kind of gets under your skin a little bit. It gets this level of fear and, and horror in, in the, in the episode, like this psychological trauma of like, okay, the, these people are awake in this space, this very limited space with no, no interaction outside. There's no inclination of what's outside except for this opening that just looks like you can see the moon and you can see some mist there in a couple parts, but that's it. And it's just, it's really interesting. It gives this sense of like that they are, that they are being held captive and that they, they are victims of an abduction of some kind. So I think that that's really interesting. And then the major meets the clown and the clown again, Murray Matheson nails this performance. He is the standout. In fact, I think that uh, the actor playing uh, the major, William Wyndham, I I hate to disparage him. Like I don't, I, I, I kind of feel guilty being a little critical of him, but that's kind of my job. That's what I'm doing here. But I kind of feel like William Wyndham doesn't really, he doesn't really sell me on the on on what like on his fear and on his like exasperated attempts at escape there's just something about his performance that just doesn't ring fully true it just seems a little bit a little bit off kilter and maybe that's kind of the point and maybe that's also 
due to the fact that it is this limited set that has this kind of reverby, echoey thing in the sound design, which I think is really interesting. Um, but it's just, it kind of seems like a little bit, I don't know, it doesn't really ring all that true to me. Um, but the clown, Murray Matheson is phenomenal. He has this very animated personality that really gives that impression of kind of insanity to an extent. And maybe that's part, maybe part of that is just, you know, he's a clown and clowns are, uh, objectively terrifying in general, but also, uh, I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, clowns in general are like, there's there's a level of um i don't know there there's i have to connect it to like the joker from batman like in general like like all the way to caesar romero um every iteration of the joker um he's a he's the clown prince of crime so like i think that he has like the character of the joker throughout the years has uh really colored the perception of clowns um in general. So like this is a circus clown and he's very animated and everything, but I think that just because of the stature from from my perspective and my history with with pop culture and everything of seeing the Joker and not seeing like an actual clown in real life or anything, thank God. Um but um that gives this impression of insanity, but it works here because of the conceit of the episode being that they are all trapped in this confined space. And that confined space is a place that has driven that in some respects, possibly driven some or all of them mad <laughs> with, with insanity. Um, but it doesn't really go full bore into that insanity thing. Um, and that's, it doesn't really go full bore into the insanity thing or into some other other aspects of the episode, which I think is a shortcoming, which I'll talk about in a bit. But for now, um, uh, we're getting introduced to the characters. The, uh, the major is, has amnesia and then the clown, uh, I have in my notes, this is weird. Uh, pilot is an army man with amnesia and the clown has a potted plant on his head. <laughs> I don't know why I, I mean, I thought that was silly. I don't know why it was worth putting in my notes, but, um, in this kind of prologue, this introduction, introductory, uh, sequence, um, I kind of thought like, cause I knew in the back of my head that, you know, these are toys and everything. I wondered, did this inspire toy story? Like I need to look into it and see if, uh, the people at Pixar kind of, uh, drew inspiration from this. Cause it, I mean, it has to be obviously like it, it's gotta be inspired by it. Cause it's, it's very similar. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I was just kind of, uh, tickled by that because I just recently rewatched toy story. Um, so that was kind of fresh in my mind. So, uh, the major says that he, like, he asks if there's a circus. Um, he's like, uh, like he's still thinking in terms of, the outside world and the clown kind of jokes with him about it. He's saying that it's, it's logical to think that there's a circus and that there's an, that the, and that there's war, but really those don't exist because we're here. Like this, this kind of plays into the thing that the hobo says later that it is this, um, that this is their universe, that this is the entirety of existence in this one space. So nothing exists outside of it. There's no circus, there's no war, there's nothing outside. And that is this very interesting nihilistic viewpoint from the clown. And it's something that is kind of propped up a bit throughout the episode as the other four characters, aside from the major, 
have been just resigned to their fate. And it's just really interesting um, from kind of an existential uh, perspective and this nihilistic viewpoint. Um, and then, so the clown, the clown then introduces the major to the other three characters. There's the bagpipe player, there's the ballet dancer, and then there is the homeless man. And at this point in my first viewing, I was just so kind of, I was pretty wrapped up in the episode. I was really intrigued by it. I feel like there was a certain sense of surrealness uh, throughout the episode and how unsettling it was because these are distinctive characters and they their their confinement their entrapment uh was very clear from the outset and i think that that's a really good way of using the storytelling and and uh demonstrating the the storytelling in in the episode um and then again like uh william windham i think was his name uh his I don't know his he has he's kind of I don't know if I really again I don't know if I really buy his his like energy and I think that it's 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 partly it's a it's a tough role it's a tough role because all of the other characters are resigned to their existence and everything and he is the one that is you know he is saddled with the um with the with the responsibility of being like the person in the group who is not ready to or hasn't hasn't lost his resolve for escape or hasn't lost his uh his mind really <laughs> so it's a tough role but like when he is yelling like where are we who are we it just seems a little bit false to me i don't know exactly how to um articulate that but it just feels a little bit a little weird to me. It doesn't really make sense to me. Or I, I mean, it makes sense to me on a dialogue level, of course, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really hook me the way that, you know, the concept itself hooks me. Um, so I think the ballerina then says like, none of us knows who we are. And we each woke up here in the darkness. And that I just felt like is a really interesting existential idea. But I feel like the episode overall, which I'll probably get to as I go through my notes, um, doesn't really doesn't really like explore that to my liking enough. It does explore it, but not not quite as well as I would hope it would. But I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, when the ballerina is speaking, I found it really interesting. Um, Susan Harrison does a phenomenal job in this episode because she speaks in this very vacant and toneless tone, if that makes sense. Like this very vacant, like uh, no one, none of us knows who we are. It's very haunting and ominous and creepy. Um, it's just very, very unsettling. Um and then kind of juxtaposing that with the clown who is speaking with this unsettled insanity or this goofy like sarcasm that's that's drenched in this manic energy and this uh this madness that he seems to have so i think that's really interesting it's a it's a really good dynamic um at play there so then so yeah so anyway so then we get the opening narration from Rod Serling which i will play right now that's a very good question. That's the best question of all. But nobody knows the answer. Clown, hobo, ballet dancer, bagpiper, 
and an army major. A collection of question marks. Five improbable entities stuck together into a pit of darkness. No logic, no reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the whats, and the wheres. We will not end the nightmare. We'll only explain it. Because this is the Twilight Zone. So right from the outset, that opening narration, I think, is really it's really interesting. Um, and I think most, most of all, to, I want to highlight two things about it. One is that I really like how Serling is positioned. He's speaking uh, the narration from the top of the opening, kind of looking down on it. And it gives this kind of omniscient power uh, behind it. And I think that that's really interesting. And as far as the actual like dialogue of the narration or the opening narration um, is the thing that really, really stood out to me and carried with me throughout the entire episode. The first time I watched it was when he says, we will not end the nightmare. We'll only explain it. And I felt, I found that to be very, again, like, like ominous and, and, and uh, a little unsettling. It's something that's that I find really intriguing about this episode is the fact that it takes this, um, it takes this premise that is is by by and large a very um, horror leaning premise. Like these people are in, are incarcerated. They're entrapped. They're trapped. They they don't have any way of getting out. And to like it is literally like i know that i know that a lot of episodes kind of start with uh serling saying that it's a uh, like you're entering a nightmare or whatever but this is like legitimately a nightmare and uh to kind of have this have it have have him say like we, we will not end the nightmare we'll only explain it really kind of helps create this fear of the episode and, and really kind of helps the the viewer um, take in the uh, the fear of the characters and and their situation. So I think that that was really a really good opening narration for the episode. And overall, like when we come back from the narration, I was just really interested in the kind of setup. I thought that the that prologue was really interesting, a good way to bring us into like the the rules in the situation at hand. And I thought that was really good, really well done. And as we come back from the narration, we see that the major is uh, kind of realizing the futility of his, of his entrapment. He is uh, he he's starting like the he's starting to get a little bit antsy about it. Um, and that's juxtaposed with the other characters in the barrel um, having been clearly kind of resigned to their entrapment. And it gives us this it gives us this vague sense that the other characters have been trapped there for a significant amount of time. And I love the way that the, that the story um, addresses that here in a bit, which I'll talk about, but it just really right from the outset, it's like, okay, these, these characters have like, they've realized how, how out of luck they are, how, how, how futile their attempts to escape are. Um, So they are just kind of, they're they're in a different mind space so uh the juxtaposition of that with the major being like okay now he's he is the adrenaline is pumping he is ready to look for a way out and throughout the episode his his like um 
his resolve to escape is uh, is tampered down significantly throughout the course of the episode. It's really interesting. So as they're all talking, we get this run of this this run of dialogue where each character kind of um, gives like a little like kind of not absent minded but very vacant or very uh, slow kind of um, slow and emotionless really um, uh, estimation or hypothesis about where they are and it's very. It's it's very much a uh, again that kind of resigned to their fate kind of tone. So I kind of want to highlight this because I thought this was really cool. I have no idea if this is actually like intentional or this this is an intentional thing. But each one kind of seems like it is referencing, if not directly, it's just indirectly referencing another episode of the twilight zone so like the ballet dancer says maybe we're on a spaceship going to another planet and like i picked that as oh third from the sun and then she says maybe we're all insane or maybe this is a mirage or illusion which i was like oh king nine will not return (laughs) and then the homeless man says we're dead and this is limbo and i'm like oh the passers-by and then the bagpiper says we don't really exist we're dream figures from someone else's existence and when he said that i kind of squealed a little bit i was like shadow play okay like i have no idea if that was intentional if that like rod serling kind of doing like a cheeky like meta uh referencing thing but like i don't know just all four of those just back to back to back i was like oh that's that's pretty awesome i love that um so anyway uh the major uh mention like then mentions and here's where uh, here's where i really like the kind of detail he mentions that there must be some there must have been uh there must have been someone down there or they i'm sorry they must have been down there a while and that someone must be bringing them food and water and the ballet dancer says no one has brought them food or water and i thought that that was really interesting because that is I mean, obviously I knew what the outcome was. I knew what the, knew what was going on and everything, but I love that the show kind of addresses that as, as a, um, as, as a potential plot hole, I guess. And not, maybe not plot hole. Cause I think that, that term gets kind of twisted around a little bit, but it, it, it is something that, uh, introduces a certain logic, uh, or lack thereof to it. And it is addressing that lack of logic in a direct way. Um, while also, making it more more intriguing and more interesting more mysterious so i really i really like that and then the major is like well we're gonna starve to death or we're gonna die of thirst like what's going on and then they mention they all mention like they don't feel anything like they there's no feeling down there (laughs) and the major again is trying to incorporate logic into this um and he claims that that it's shock or the aftermath of shock um and this is one of the more haunting, haunting lines of dialogue in the episode is when the ballet dancer says, we've been here for an endless time, which is really interesting and, again, nihilistic, crazy, and and it kind of helps with the panic of the major, like the panic energy of the major. Like, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of the actor's performance uh, of the major, but 
it does count it is the panic in his performance the panic of the character counterbalances the nihilism of the other characters really really well and again the sound design of the episode is really interesting with that kind of reverb of the dialogue um because they're in a hollow barrel uh it gives us that all the more sense of uh emptiness in it it is just it's really interesting because it it feels like this this episode should be completely claustrophobic and it is claustrophobic but it's really interesting to hear that echo that reverb in the dialogue as they're talking because that fills the negative space in an oral sense or an aural sense um that just really makes it feel that all the more like lonesome and and isolated and i just really i really like that um yeah and then the homeless man kind of goes on to talk about how uh they've gone through this before they, they've gone through this whole ordeal of trying to figure out a way out but he says another very nihilistic very crazy um depressing kind of realization or rationalization he says we discovered that this is the universe for our purposes this is the universe this is all that there is and i really really like that um and then we get the next big wrinkle from uh from the story in that the bell rings and i was not expecting that i didn't know that that was going to be a part of the story at all and i really really like that um, because that adds more of a physical nightmare to it and a threat, a certain threat that comes from the unexplainable. So in addition to the psychological horror and psychological, um, fear of the confinement, we get this completely deafening external thing that is not something that they understand or can, can really know. And the the kind of deafening of the soundtrack, like the 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 booming booming tone of it, and the way that the camera shakes is is really uh, really adds texture to that. Um, and it's another good way of like kind of keeping us on our toes and keeping the characters on their toes, or at least the major on his toes. Because we feel like at the moment, we feel like we know, we know the situation. We know what, like we've now gotten accustomed to what, what is going on. And each time we feel that way, they add a new wrinkle. Like the whole fact that like, okay, we, we understand that they're trapped, but okay, how do they get food and water? Oh, they don't need food and water because they just, they don't feel anything. Well, that's interesting. That's a new wrinkle. And then it's like, okay, now we're... We know that it's a weird like universe thing or that they, they exist in this space. So so now we can start thinking about how to get out. Oh, no, wait, there's a booming bell ringing sound that adds just an entirely new um, piece of creepiness to it. Um, so I really like the way that it's kind of structured and everything. So here after that, we get one of the more interesting and and uh best scenes of the episode in my opinion and it's kind of strange too so um at this point the homeless man says something like why don't you why don't you um why don't you dance for the major and help pass the time and the backpacker's like yeah and i'll play music for you and there's this level of kind of sort of disturbing level of of unhingedness um, in this moment um but it's also kind of wholesome and sweet so 
the ballet dancer gets up and starts dancing around as the bagpiper is bagpiping and playing his music. And I found that to be a couple of different things. One is, again, that very wholesome, very interesting um, uh, kind of human element to it. Like there's something innately human about the way that the characters just decide on the fly to try to cheer up the major uh, through music and dancing. And it kind of gives off this almost sense of community or this desire to entertain others and spread happiness to others, which really plays in it. Like it makes the fact that they're dolls to be donated. It makes that land a little bit harder. Like they are, they are just programmed. They are innately ready to, to entertain each other. And I think that that is really interesting and, and uh, kind of tells this very interesting kind of human story of these inanimate objects basically <laughs> and uh and yeah and kind of deep down i think that the, and i feel like the subtext or or the the themes of the episode again aren't really explored quite as well so i could be kind of projecting what's maybe not fully there but it kind of feels like this is about people like human beings like being being ripped out of their world and then yearning to be among other people. It's when you take, when you take human beings out of a society, out of, out of like the functions of society and around like other people and everything, they will effectively want and yearn to be among other people in a be in society. So I think that there's something there, but it's, it, there's not really enough text in this, in the story to really, um, explore that with as much depth as several other episodes of the Twilight Zone do. So I don't know. But anyway, so the major then kicks the wall and he's just kind of going through all of these different um, ideas on how to escape. And he like he thinks that kind of kicking the wall or breaking through the wall is worth a try for for escape. And the clown just kind of admonishes him and throws sarcasm at him, says like, there's no like our hands cannot break through this. It's metal. It's useless. You're an idiot. Like he calls him. He says he says you're an idiot. And and uh, but uh, I th- I don't remember the exact words, but like he basically saying like he's a resilient idiot or something. And then uh, the major kind of reacts to that or responds to that with no we won't use our hands we'll use this sword that's laying here and then he takes the sword and tries to break through the wall and it just shatters into pieces and i really like this because this is where the major's resolve for escape kind of starts to break down a little bit um and then it's kind of then it gets to a scene where the ballet dancer is talking to him about the different like like about the different um uh about about the different theories about where they are so as his as his kind of resolve is starting to break uh this very captivating character of the ballet dancer says in this very flat and defeated tone um that she suggests that the dungeon might be a place for the unloved and maybe that's what they are it has this undercurrent of optimism running throughout it like her tone it's it's kind of weird like the 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 content of her words are defied by the tone in which she's speaking them so like she says maybe we're unloved maybe that's it and the tone she uses suggests like like it shifts a little bit and suggests a kind of pleasant optimism like in a sense that she is saying 
um it's like she's saying oh uh i'm this is maybe an answer to the unanswerable um and so maybe that's good maybe we're unloved maybe that's it um and not quite as cheerful as that but there's like this subtext this underlying kind of tone that has like maybe that's it it's elevating her tone uh her normal flat and defeated tone um but it's just it's so contradictory because she has that that kind of like maybe we're loved maybe we're unloved maybe that's it it's so and she says that as like maybe i answered the question but the answer is just so wildly bleak and upsetting and again nihilistic and just very sad and depressing like maybe we're unloved maybe we're we are just unloved that is so bleak and it's just it's said in such a way that uh makes it sound like she's sort of almost happy that she maybe has a suggestion for the answer and that also kind of plays into the fact that all the characters or the characters in the story are kind of all share this thing of like they want to help other people they want to be in each other's lives in in certain capacities and uh that's what they're programmed for that's what they were created for as dolls to help you know to to help kids and everything so i don't know that's interesting um but on the other hand <laughs> i kind of feel like that idea is it's it's kind i kind of feel like by saying that they maybe that they're unloved and maybe that's it feels like a little bit of a stretch like it feels like the episode is communicating its central premise and theme a little too directly um like it it I, I don't know. It kind of feels like having a character like specifically say like maybe we're unloved this early in the story um, feels a little bit just I don't know. It just feels like a little bit like hitting the nail on the head a little too early and too directly. So I don't know. But, you know, what whatever. Um, then uh, the major he's so perplexed by it. He says, like, we must have names where people there must be people out there who care. And again, that really plays into that subtext. This is a much better line of dialogue to kind of play into that, um, to really play into that uh, subtext of them being unloved and unwanted and everything, and that being kind of their central kind of thing. Because um, that is that that's an outward expression of of speaking to the assumption of you know reality and the assumption of being alive like oh yeah well we are human beings we must have names we're people we are human beings and there must be other human beings out there who care about us enough to realize that we are not where we should be or we are not reachable um and so that kind of kind of bumps up his his resolve a little bit more even if he can't remember knowing anyone he knows that that is a part of being human is connecting with other humans and that kind of brings back his resolve to try to break out and then it's immediately <laughs> immediately uh dropped down again because he starts trying to dig a tunnel and i thought that this connection was really interesting um because we're like coming up on the first act break and he says like as he's trying to dig and it's completely futile he says oh i know where we are and uh like this is preparing for the act break and like as soon as he started saying that like he knows where they are and they drag it out a little bit too much but uh like i put in my notes he's going to say hell he's going to say that they're in hell because <laughs> like that connection is really interesting like him trying to dig and then realizing like oh 
I can't dig because we're already at the bottom of existence. We're in hell. Like we're actually in hell. That's probably what it is. Um, and then he kind of does this whole thing where he's just like, you know, it's unequivocal. We, we are, we are, I know exactly where we are. We're in hell. And it's very, I don't know. I don't know. It's very, very animated and everything. Um, but also there's something about his delivery of that. We are in hell. Uh, it kind of seems a little bit, I don't know. It, it it's, doesn't seem as serious as it should be, I guess. I don't know. So then the act break happens. And again, this is another, this is another example of it playing into that kind of communal, um, helping others kind of thing. Um, because the characters are sitting by and watching the major keep like tapping on the wall and trying to figure out ways to escape. Um, and they kind of agree to just let him try and that he's in, it's implied that he's been going at it for hours, which is, is interesting for two reasons. One, it is showing like directly telling us the passage of time and making it even more psychologically horrifying that they are there for eternity. Um, that that's, that's what it seems like at this point. And it's just, it's really, it's really, um, unsettling in a certain respect. And the other part that's interesting about that is that it's these characters that they have been there much longer than the major. And they have been, like I said before, resigned to their fate of being trapped in this barrel. Um, yet they are seeing the mental breakdown almost of this newcomer who has not reached their part um but they are letting him play out his his like fantasies of escape they're preserving his hopeful spirit while they themselves are entrapped and they are reserved to being resigned to their fate of being trapped and again there's this sense of helping others among this group like this group wanting to help each other in certain ways it's like then it's a uh, we're all in this together kind of thing and that sense of helping others kind of skirts the line um, or or it comes up close to the line of being enabling um, like, oh, they're enabling him to to have hope when there is no hope they're, when they sh when he shouldn't have any hope because they're in a hopeless situation. But instead of like enabling his uh, efforts to escape that they know is not is not, you know, viable. Um, it just becomes this group effort to stave off the insanity for the major because they are kind of at their wits end or they are defeated, but who are they to tamper down the, uh, the energy of the major? So I don't know. There's just something very wholesome about that. Um, and I hope I are, I hope I articulated that, uh, well, so, um, so they, uh, the major keeps, keeps looking for ways to escape and everything. And the clown jokes that they should try acrobatics. And, uh, and then the ballet dancer is like, wait, no, that's actually a good idea. And then they have this back and forth. That's very fun. Um, because again, Murray Matheson just nails it. He's fantastic. Um, cause he points out that, you know, we can do that. We can, we can jump around and everything, but gravity is, you know, kind of a hindrance. Like there's this thing called gravity. Um, and if we were to fall, we would be, you know, killed and, and injured and everything. Um, but alas, they try it and 
this is just really cool. Like there is a level of suspense to this that made me very nervous throughout the episode, throughout this end part of the episode, um, because they're standing shoulder to shoulder, or not shoulder to shoulder, but uh, standing on each other's shoulders, trying to reach the top. It's like a barrel of monkeys thing. And as the ballet dancer is climbing up, I like, I don't know. It just made me nervous. And, and, uh and it made me it made me nervous for this endearing character the one kind of like endearing i guess they're all kind of endearing the homeless man doesn't really have much to do like that that was kind of a bummer um because like a lot of the efforts are on the major and uh the clown and the ballet dancer but as she is the one that is kind of climbing up to the top you know you feel like very um uh very nervous for her and at this point i also thought that I really liked the idea of the major, the major's existence in the barrel, the major's pure existence in it and his resilience to try to escape. I like the idea of that bringing hope back to the group. And because, because like just a couple scenes before they were, they were just letting him do his thing. And then they like they have this wrinkle of of hope that like oh yeah we could just climb out we can try to climb out and everything um i just kind of like that again that sense of community that working together kind of thing even when you know the majority of the people in the barrel are completely defeated and not wanting to to try to escape and so as they're climbing up we get this really cool dutch angle shot as they're standing on each other's shoulders and again, the ballet dancer is making me nervous because she's climbing up and everything. And like, I was wondering if maybe she would fall and get injured. Um, and that would be another kind of wrinkle or another kind of human element to it that like, oh, she's like, I was fearful, fearful for her <laughs> um, because she is argu- arguably the most likable of the of the group. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But uh she she's just short from the top of it and that is just deflating that is a deflating effect and the major like is still resilient he's telling them all to stretch and everything and and try to stretch everyone try to stretch and he's desperate and that's when the bell rings and they all fall down and oh that was such a cool surprise that was such a cool moment because it it kind of like knocked the wind out of me a little bit because i was nervous and everything also i'm terrified of heights so you know that's another uh, element um but i also think that and granted like we're coming up to nearly the end of the episode but i also think that it was maybe a little bit of a missed opportunity because the ballet dancer's leg like they asked like how how she's doing and she says oh it's a little strained but i'll be okay and so that kind of makes it a little bit like the stakes aren't that high. Like it, it just kind of seems like, I don't know, there isn't enough there. Um, but it, then again, they're, they're dolls, they're, uh, sentient dolls. So, and they can't really feel anything anyway. So it tracks within the logic of the episode. Um, but still that does not tamper the major's resolve. Cause he says that they'll try again and they'll tie a rope to the sword and use it as kind of a grappling hook kind of thing. Um, and at this point I was like, okay, we only have five minutes left. And, uh, at that point I kind of realized like, I I think that this episode is maybe a bit of a missed opportunity because I felt like it wasn't delving into the existential story that I hoped it would. 
Um, the more I've watched it and thought about it, though, I'm I'm kind of content with it. Um, I don't know how it could have explored it any more, honestly, um, because, like I said, we do have those moments where it is exploring the human element of it, this urge to please each other and to being be accepting of each other and uh, letting letting someone work out a problem even though we don't think it is a solvable problem. I think that there's a certain like respect in a societal kind of sense um, uh, there, but it's a little bit hard to read. It's a little bit vague. And and I think it could have done with some, a little bit more um, texture and a little more, more um, attention really. So, at this point, again, we have five minutes left, and I was thinking like, okay, well, since Serling said that they're not going to end the nightmare, I wondered if this was going to go into a very, very bleak end. Like, I was wondering if it was going to be this completely ambiguous uh, ending and that it would just leave on this note of like, okay, well, we don't, like, there, there's just no escape. Um, so I was kind of nervous about that to an extent, and I was kind of curious how that would play out, but... Anyway, so they try again. The major hooks the hooks the sword up and climbs up. And at this at this point, I um, <laughs> uh, again, I was kind of thinking like, oh, I wonder if this is going to be a very bleak ending, because like I thought, oh, it would be interesting if he falls to his death um, on either side of the barrel and that. I was thinking like, oh, I wonder if like the rest of the characters are just going to go back to being resigned to their fate and everything. Um and the more I thought about that, the more I realized, like, yeah, that would have been way, way too bleak. Um, yeah. So anyway, the major makes it up to the top. Um, the kind of physics of the sword, like, I didn't really believe that the sword would stay that level on that. But I mean, I guess it does. It does make sense. I don't know. But anyway, um, he made it, makes it to the top and is straddling the top. They all ask, like, what, where are we? What do you see? And then he immediately falls off the other side and into what I wasn't sure was snow or sand. It was snow. Um, And that's kind of that's 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 almost the end of the episode. Like the major falls off and then the characters look up and the ballet dancer says like that he will come back and everything. Um, That's another thing about the episode that really um, kind of kind of has this uh, this overarching kind of idea is that um throughout the episode the clown is kind of admonishing the major and saying like oh logic doesn't exist here there's no logic here so you can't think logically there's no there's no circus there's no war the that follows logic we don't exist outside of this barrel and that makes the entirety of this situation completely illogical yet the major is not ready to accept that so he is saying like there's a really good line where he says um he says uh yeah well none of us will get out of here unless one of us gets out of here and that's logic that you can you know that you can that you can set your watch to i don't remember exactly what uh what the line was but that's logic that you know that's logic you can get behind and i really like that that kind of like resolve of the majors is really uh palpable and interesting throughout the story um but the ballet dancer says that he will come back for them and the clown in this weird sense of um clarity I, I that i don't necessarily think is justified he says that 
he will he will come back but not to get them because we really are in hell and maybe that i don't know maybe that's the persona of the clown just dropping and being this realistic uh rationalization of what's going on and this realistic like what his actual thoughts are on it because he is this animated just like kooky character throughout the entire episode and then he has this just very biting like real like horror horrible uh, kind of viewpoint that he kind of takes the mask down to to state about uh, to state it so I don't know maybe there's something there I'm not sure but then we get kind of the the resolution of the episode with a little girl who picks up the major doll from the snow and she uh, she uh, she taps the the woman's shoulder and says oh hey uh, you know this doll dropped down uh here it is and then uh she's like she's like oh okay you can go ahead and put in this barrel that's marked view park girls home ages two to ten 17th annual christmas doll drive um and so the girl places the doll back in the barrel um and uh first of all i just realized that this is a christmas episode sort of um so maybe the only christmas episode isn't uh the night of the meek but um at that point i kind of wondered i i like i thought like oh, i wonder if the major will still have amnesia or if it'll reset or if it'll end with them having the knowledge of the truth or whatever um and then we get the resolution that the bell that was ringing was the bell for donations that she was doing and then we just get this closing shot of the doll on the dolls as vacant stairs so we don't actually see them alive at the end which is kind of a bummer but i don't know but it does kind of hint at it that uh the end scene is the ballet dancer with a single tear running down her cheek as rod serling says the closing narration which i will play right now just a barrel a dark depository where i kept the counterfeit make-believe pieces of plaster and cloth wrought in the distorted image of human life but this added hopeful note perhaps they are unloved only for the moment in the arms of children, there can be nothing but love. A clown, a tramp, a bagpipe player, a ballet dancer, and a major. Tonight's cast of players and the odd stage, known as the Twilight Zone. So that's five characters in search of an exit. And I think that the the fact that they're donated toys for an orphanage is an interesting parallel to the toys having no one. Like it is it tells this kind of undercurrent of like it in that's why I kind of think that, you know, the line about them being unloved um, is a little too direct early in the episode, because that's kind of the major thesis of the episode is that they are unwanted toys or unloved toys who are going to a, they are being donated to an orphanage where they like Rod Serling says that uh, in the arms of children, there can be nothing but love. And so it has this hopeful optimism at the end that they are being donated to children who need them um, because they are in an orphanage. And I think that that's really an interesting uh, optimism to bring into this very nihilistic and, and existentially dark episode. And it's my belief. I don't have anything to corroborate this, but it has to be. But I believe that Toy Story took that kind of backwards optimism uh uh of the story in its ending and that closing narration and ran with it to make this very cool um uh like iconic uh animated film toy story yeah so 
so yeah, so um, now to uh, like overall, I should say overall, this episode was fine. It was good. Uh, it, probably top half, um, top half uh, in my ranking, my mental rankings. But um, I do wish that there was a little bit more to it. But what I could glean from it, what I could dig in from it uh, is plenty, plenty. Uh, there's plenty there uh, for me to kind of chew on. So I do appreciate it. And also, I do like that the closing narration includes the word depository, which is, you know, was the original uh, story's uh, title, the depository. Um, so I've got some trivia here um, and a rant about J.J. Abrams, which I'll talk about. But anyway, um, so speaking of the title, uh, this is coming from Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. The title of the episode was changed to Five Characters in Search of an Exit. And uh, Marvin Petal says that, uh, the depository sounded too much like suppository <laughs> and that's why they changed it. So I don't know. Um, and it was actually Marvin Petal's suggestion that they film that vertical climb scene by building the container horizontally and filming it that way. And that's how it ended up being filmed. And, uh, the barrel set itself was stored in, uh, like, like MGM, lots or i i don't remember where but uh the barrel was then used later for season four the season four episode no time like the past and it was even uh repurposed for the outer limits uh in two episodes the inheritors part two and the probe which also uh gotta just give a shout out to my friend victor's podcast the outer limits podcast go check that out great stuff over there and uh and yeah so then uh, the other piece of trivia is that the little girl who picks up the major doll was Mona Houghton, which is the daughter of producer Buck Houghton. Um, okay. And so going back to my notes, because I have some from Wikipedia, um, <laughs> uh, the episode title, uh, Six Characters in Search of an Exit, is a play on the, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, on the Pirandello play titled Six Characters in Search of an Author. Um uh yeah and then uh in terms of the production dolls were specifically crafted um for the final shot uh they were modeled after the actors who played the parts so it's completely you know uh specifically crafted for that and the episode and okay so there's a 1997 movie called Cube, which I haven't seen, but it's directed by Vincenzo Natale. He's he's a very interesting filmmaker. He did uh, In the Tall Grass, um, and he also worked a lot on Hannibal, uh, the show. But uh, this episode was um, apparently an inspiration for his 1997 like kind of breakout film Cube, um, which has a group of a group of characters that are kind of trapped in uh in a single space i'm not sure what the what else is about it but it is available to stream on imdb freebie or whatever it is whatever the uh free streaming services that you can access it through amazon prime um yeah and i'll check it out now i might put together something for patreon uh for the five dollar level um for cube and a couple other movies i have this whole list of ideas that i want to do for that but anyway that's all to come later check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and so my final piece of trivia is something i already talked about and i have a rant that i'm gonna do because oh god uh okay so like i said the tv series felicity in i think 2000 
paid homage to five characters in search of an exit and the twilight zone itself in season two episode 11 help for the lovelorn which was directed by six five characters in search of an exits uh director lamont johnson like i said it's available on hulu it's very heavily influenced by twilight zone it's in black and white the felicity title card is in the style of the twilight zone like opening like title um there are Dutch angles used throughout it that are seemingly very much in line with, with the Twilight Zone. And even some Twilight Zone music is played throughout it. Um, and up to, like, the f- the first half, I watched the entire episode. It's available on Hulu. I watched the entire episode. Um, I was thinking, like, oh, this is actually pretty awesome. Like, I don't know what's going on because I don't know, like, the characters or anything. Um, but it's pretty easy to follow out in isolation and everything. Um, it kind of has this thing where like Felicity is like pining after a character and it's affecting her life. And she uh, here, she is given this card kind of like, kind of like the chaser where someone gives her a card and says like, Hey, if you go to this clinic, they'll, they'll, uh, help you, um, they'll, they'll help you not be so lovelorn and uh throughout the episode she's kind of like hesitant about like this surgery that needs to be done at the clinic and it has shades of like eye of the beholder and like i said the chaser but the end of the episode is a direct riff on five characters in search of an exit there are five characters felicity and her companions are trapped in the single room and it is literally beat for beat it's five characters in search of an exit and it just completely deflated my enjoyment of the episode because it's a jj abrams thing he produced he produced felicity and jj abrams as much as i enjoy like as much as i enjoy and appreciate his hand in making one of my favorite shows of all time lost he wasn't the showrunner he just produced it but he gave a lot of advice. He gave a lot of uh, interesting things. Um, as much as I appreciate him for that, the guy is a freaking hack. Like he, There's no other way to say it. Like I'm not even a Star Wars fan, but The Force Awakens kind of annoys me because it is literally like a remake of A New Hope. Like it is, it is a new hope dressed up in, in like this weird like cosplay of of the sequels or whatever and then the rise of skywalker is just an absolute mess because he doesn't oh it's just so annoying but anyway five characters in search of an exit is like like help for love help for the lovelorn becomes a five characters in search of an exit um he like it becomes just a remake it it's not it it i'm all for like an homage to classic classic storytellers and classic like uh classics the classics i'm all for that but when it is just this when it's just a person who is just doing like fan fiction it's so hacky and dumb and and almost insulting like i can't believe that they got lamont johnson to direct this episode of Felicity, and then they wrote it to be a direct ripoff of his iconic episode. Like, that feels so disrespectful. Like, oh, hey, Lamont Johnson, you know, 40, 
40 or 30 some years ago you directed this episode of the twilight zone we're doing this big love letter to the twilight zone let's go ahead and have you direct it oh yeah i'm on board oh by the way the ending is going to be the exact same as as your iconic episode so just do what you like that just feels so ugh, that rubs me in the wrong way so hard and i just i was so angry about that i uh, like the, my eyes were in the back of my head cause they rolled, they, they were rolling so hard cause it just, it just made me so angry. And it's like, it's like I tweeted this on, at, on Twitter at OV anthology pod, but like, um, <laughs> like JJ Abrams has done enough of this, like, um, fan fiction masquerading as originality or original like genre filmmaking um enough of that over the years that it's it's not a surprise that he did this in 2000 with with the twilight zone um but it also like it, it like in my head the entire time i just saw the gif from breaking bad where aaron paul is screaming he can't keep getting away with this because he can't keep getting away with this like God, ugh, it's just so it's so frustrating. Um, but anyway, I'm now <laughs> railing against uh, this producer uh, for something he did 22 years ago. So I'm going to. Yeah, whatever. So anyway, those are my thoughts on five characters in search of an exit. Uh, stay tuned for uh, my forthcoming Felicity podcast, apparently. But um, not really. I'm not starting another podcast. But as always, uh, let me know what you thought of uh, five characters in search of an exit. And uh, and yeah, uh, I'm going to now round out the episode with a uh, brief spoiler free review of uh, episode 22 from Science Fiction Theater first season titled A Visit from Dr. Quine. Visit from Dr. Pliny originally aired on September 24th, 1955. Like I said, it is, at least as of this recording on July 2nd, 2022, um, it is available on YouTube. There is a YouTube link in the show notes, so hopefully it's still there when you're listening to this. Um, yeah, so the episode uh, synopsis is... Quirky strangers appear at the research institute. They have curious ideas and unexplained knowledge. Local researchers aren't sure if they are legitimate or if they are dangerous nuts. What will happen if they are allowed into the lab? Um, it was directed by Henry S. Kessler, written by Sloane Nibley, and stars Edmund Gwen, William Schallert, and Morris Ankrum. And the pre-show of the episode was this kind of kind of fun a uh, little ex- uh, uh, example or whatever that Truman Bradley did where he has this umbrella and uses it to cover himself under this like big hanging faucet of like to to um, 
to replicate like rain and he uses that as an example about how we are constantly bombarded by particles not just water from the sky but like particles and uh he talks about like cosmic rays from outer space are are like hitting us at all times and stuff uh so it's kind of kind of interesting and a little silly i guess but uh then he says his signature like oh this is the this is the theme of the story that we're going to tell you today and I've got to say, I'm now 22 episodes into science fiction theater for this project, for this podcast, and I think that this might be my favorite episode. This is an episode that kind of plays with this um, shared, like, like it actually has like this, um, first of all, it is, it is more science fiction than most of the other episodes I've reviewed, and it has this thematic element to it where it is reflecting like society our world our collective like scientific um advancements uh at this point and so i'm i guess i'll kind of give it away up front because it's pretty clear from the outset uh dr pliny uh and his companion he has he has a companion an assistant named mr thomas they're very strange. <laughs> they go to the wife, they go to the house of the widow of an acclaimed scientist who works at this institute, this Institute of Advanced Astrophysics, and they ask to keep a, uh, to, to rent a room, um, and then they take a bunch of his books and they speed read through them. Um, it's very, it's very per, per, uh, peculiar and strange. They don't sleep at night. Um, and it's very clear, like they are aliens, like it isn't stated specifically, but they, they are aliens from another planet who have visited earth to try to give, uh, to impart knowledge and advance, um, advance a, uh, kind of advance our scientific community and advance our, uh, science to where we can be, you know, much more advanced and Dr. Pliny, played by uh, Edmund Gwen, it's really interesting because his performance, maybe it's because he's kind of, uh, he's a little bit, uh, he's he's kind of short and he has like this English accent, but he reminded me so much of Dr. John Hammond from Jurassic Park, played by Richard Attenborough. And like the cadence of his voice, like I wonder if Attenborough patterned his performance after after uh the uh, edmund gwen in uh the visit of dr a, a visit from dr pliny because it feels like that's maybe not as a obscure reference but it just it's 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 very very similar so it's and it's interesting but anyway so i really like the way that this episode is structured because the entire first act is a is basically giving us all of the information about how strange Dr. Pliny and, and Mr. Thomas are, how much they are very much not of this world. Um, and it's basically him convincing the scientists at the Institute to let him work in the lab. And that's the end of the first act. Then the second act comes in and now some time has passed and Dr. Pliny is working in the Institute and he's basically creating this machine that will create um that will have uh far-reaching implications for limitless energy he's harnessing the energy of of the cosmos 
to have like a perpetual not perpetual motion machine but like harness energy and and end the end the atomic age and everything it's very lofty very huge and what i love about this i won't give away exactly what happens but um i love this because the show is propping up science and the scientific community and has this reverence for science and i love that and again i say this every time i wish that there was something like this in the sci-fi anthology format in modern day they someone needs to remake this have like a reputable scientist or someone someone host it like truman bradley and create a sci-fi anthology show based around the science and and kind of i don't know because like watching this every time i watch this i wonder how many kids how many george mcflies were there that gained a passion for stem like for for science and everything and went into stem like education and and fields and everything and like how influential was this show at the time it's just something that i i don't think we really have here now in the modern era but it just shows the respect for that and then what happens there's a dramatic turn that ends with i mean it's it's pretty light drama it's pretty light all told but um there's this line that uh that mr thomas says to dr pliny and this kind of gives away a little bit sorry but uh they are they are basically forced out of the lab they're forced out of the institute they are going to escape it's not as dramatic as as it probably could have been but Mr. Thomas says this line to Dr. Pliny and says, um, it's expected. Like he's, he says that he says that what happened that forced them to have to leave before they finish their, finish their work. Um, he says it's expected because, and the quote is, if you tell them a lie big enough, they'll believe you. If you tell them a truth big enough, they'll lock you up. And, if that doesn't have resonance today <laughs> um, in the modern political climate, I don't know what does. But it is very it's 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 incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Um, I, I love that line. I think that that tells such an interesting story about where society was in the 50s. And and um, and it just says a lot. It says it says a lot. Um, yeah. So um I won't give much else away. I did. I really liked this story. I really liked this episode. And it leaves on a note of of kind of optimism um, in, a, in a certain way that I won't give away. But it, it kind of has this resolve that, yeah, maybe if there are other other like advanced intelligence out in the cosmos, out in the universe, maybe maybe our puny human lives will uh, maybe they won't be hostile and maybe they will be, um, you know, forgiving of our shortcomings, uh, and still help us, uh, advance and, uh, and reach a point where, um, you know, science can be, um, uh, perfected or, or advanced, uh, a lot 
I guess. So I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> I think it's, that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. <laughs> uh, check out that episode of Science Fiction Theater, though, because I, I really I really did uh, like it a lot. Um, next week on the podcast, I'm hoping that I can stay consistent with weeks and everything. But uh, next time on the podcast will be episode 79, in which I will be reviewing a quality of mercy. And also uh, episode 23 of Science Fiction Theater titled uh, The Strange People at Picos. So stay tuned for that or, or check that out later. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting me and everything. It means a lot. For more exclusive content and, and stuff, uh, uh, just a bunch of stuff like Stephen King short fiction reviews, uh, movie commentary tracks, TV reviews, book reactions, all this stuff, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I have different levels of tiers uh for it so check that out uh but yeah thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you in the next episode and now here's a short clip from our patreon exclusive rss feed to hear the full clip and more exclusive patreon content go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of one dollar per month thank you and enjoy and really just cool but the problem that i had with that is that Knowing the short story, I'm, I'm like, almost 100% sure that the sister subplot isn't in the story. And it really feels like they needed something to hook... Something to kind of expand the story. And, uh... Wow. What an ass. I'm sure the mic picked that up, but this, this Mustang just flew, flew past, uh like everyone on the street here. What an asshole. Anyway, so um, it's like they needed they needed something to pad the story. They needed something to pad the runtime and to give a connection to the investigation and the outside world outside of Finn's, uh, you know, um, abduction and held hostageness um, <laughs> and his, his confinement. That's the word. Um, and, and I respect that. I understand that. And I, I do agree that they needed something more, um, to pad out the story. And I do like the way that it kind of all connects at the end, but I kind of feel like that whole subplot could have used a little bit more, a little bit more baked into it. Like, I kind of feel like if they were going to go that route, they should have maybe had, a few more scenes to establish Gwen's ability or Gwen's, uh, you know, power or whatever. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.